Hello, and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. I'm joined by my fellow writer and my constant co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello, boys! I'm back! Ooh, you are energized by that long weekend. Independence Day, man. Pre-recording that last podcast to let you really rest your vocal cords. So uh, because of that quirk of timing and the holiday, we, I think, mercifully missed the period where everyone talks about the All-Star game and All-Star snubs and who should and shouldn't have been on the All-Star roster. Before we started recording, we were just discussing how we don't know who is on the All-Star team and who is not, except for a few guys that people are are mad about missing the team. And it often seems as if the people who are snubs at first end up making the team because everyone makes the All-Star team now. So I'm not upset about any particular selections or, or non-selections, but I am curious about your philosophy on the All-Star game, if you have one, as far as selecting players and how much weight you place on current season performance versus prior performance, because my thinking on this has evolved over the years. Yeah, I think I'm mostly just reward the guys who had a good first half. And, I, you know, I don't mm-hmm. really care how fluky it is. I think the only thing that bugs me is if 35 middle relievers go like Evan Meek yes. made the. <laughs> made the all-star team one year and like he had you know he he had a great first half but like nobody had heard of Evan Meek and I think on balance I'd like to expose like you know younger fun up-and-coming guys mm-hmm. it's kind of annoying when you know when one team like I remember one year Seattle like might have been the year they they opened Safeco but they voted David Bell into the all-star game like that does nobody any uh-huh. good but yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't get as. I remember a couple years ago. I think it was the Freddie Freeman versus Puig final vote in 2013. Uh-huh. I was really mad about that final vote, and like I can't even imagine a headspace where I care about the final vote anymore. So yeah, <laughs> I miss being mad about baseball awards and honors. It's been a while for me, but I think that my thinking on this has changed. I when I was younger, I think I used to be more along the lines of current season performance matters most. And even if you're fluky, if you had a good first half and you deserve it based on that, you should make the all-star team. And I thought of it more from the player's perspective and fairness, I suppose, that being named to the all-star team or being selected to the team is an honor that you're supposed to receive if you have played like an all-star in that season. And I think I've kind of come around to the argument that we shouldn't be looking at it from that perspective as much as we should from the perspective of the sport and what is best for baseball. And what is best for baseball is probably literally having the stars Mm -hmm. on the team to an extent. Obviously, if you're having a really lousy season, you probably shouldn't be on the roster unless it's like a farewell gesture, career accomplishment kind of award. But I think for the most part, maybe baseball would be better served by having Miguel Cabrera and players like that on your team, even if they're having down years, even if there are guys who are having genuine breakout, excellent first halves. That feels like a shot at Justin Smoke 
at former Gamecock Justin Smoke. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it kind of is because he he does deserve a spot based on his performance, and and that's the thing. I like the idea that you can come out of nowhere and be an all star. I I like that it's sort of open to everyone, and if you were bad before or you were disappointing before. You can put it all together for the first half and make the all-star team, even if you're one of those guys who we look back on in later years and say, how is that guy an all-star? Even if we just look at the full season stats and he cratered in the second half, which happens all the time. So Mm -hmm. I'm sort of of two minds about this. I'm not totally aligned with either camp. I'm sort of straddling both. And so I can't get too worked up about any selection or non-selection because of that, I think. But but I have gravitated more toward the the career accomplishment or at least the, the previous few seasons playing a, a bigger role in who should get selected. Yeah, I think both sides have merit. And just because like this is a, a popularity contest, that's sort of how it gets baked in anyway. Like yeah. there's it's a it's pitched as as like a merit thing but every you know everybody votes for who they like or who they've heard of uh anyway so that's sort of you know we do sort of get that hybrid approach i will say like it's fun to watch mike trout win mvp back-to-back years but it's also fun to see the guys who know this is their only shot at it get their shot because they seem to enjoy it a lot and you also get guys like i remember the first big jose bautista year like i had barely heard of him when yeah when he hit 54 home runs and went to the all-star game and everybody thought this was like the one-time all-star who always comes to mind first is Jose Rosado, who's a pitcher <laughs> like there. I mean, he was a pitcher for the Royals in the 90s. So like these are not equivalent players at all. But it felt like that at the time. And he turned out to be, you know, one a huge name, a household name in baseball. So you get that that sort of launching pad. And I think there are fun elements anyway you you decide to pack it in. I think one thing that I think we understand a little bit now, maybe then certainly I did when I was younger, is that these guys, I think they all appreciate the honor, but I think a lot of the vets would rather have the vacation than than go, uh, you know, go somewhere for three days and have to, you know, change all their plans around. So Right. And it sort of works itself out in that way in that you select the guys who've made 10 all-star teams already and maybe they come up with an injury or something. Something in my ribs. (laughs) This is... Right. And then someone else gets a chance. So it sort of self-corrects. But yeah, it is an exhibition and it's supposed to draw attention to baseball and showcase the most exciting aspects of the sport. And you're right. Sometimes the most exciting aspect of the sport is Aaron Judge or someone who we never would have expected to make the all-star team. And other times it's the, the guy who makes the team year in and year out. So it depends on the player. So uh, we're not going to have any pitchforks here about anyone making or, or not making the team. But there's plenty of that elsewhere on the internet if you are into it. So today we are going to hear from and talk about who I would consider to be the ultimate all-star snub. And this is a guy who I know you did not expect to be talking about on the podcast today. As recently as this morning. I didn't expect to be. So let me read you. I have already read you, but for the benefit of the listeners here as we record on Wednesday are the five most valuable players in baseball to this point in the season according to baseball prospectuses wins above replacement player number 1 Joey Votto okay sure Aaron Judge all right would have been a surprise before the season but is completely predictable now Paul Goldschmidt, of course, perennial top-of-the-list guy. Corey Seager, yes, we all would have expected that. And number five, Tyler Flowers. 
Atlanta Braves catcher. And if I can just excerpt our Gchat conversation when I brought this up earlier today, <laughs> I said to you that I had a 50-minute conversation with Tyler Flowers. Some expletives followed from your end, followed by why. I said, I'm writing about him. You said, again, why? (laughs) I said, he's fifth in warp this year. You said, no, he's not. That's preposterous. I listed the top five. You said, I don't even know what team he's on. Is he still a brave? (laughs) I knew he was a brave. (laughs) I said, yes. So (laughs) we're hearing from Tyler Flowers because he is very close to the top of this leaderboard. And there are legitimate reasons for that. Now, he is probably not actually the fifth best player in baseball. He will probably not be at the top of this leaderboard at the end of the season or in any future season, but he has done a lot to deserve his place there. And partially it's an offensive improvement. So he has become a really good hitter for a catcher. And this is a transformation that started last season. You'll hear him talk about how this has happened, but He has dramatically improved his contact rate. He's hitting for average now. He used to be a lousy hitter. He's been a very good hitter this year. And a lot of it is attributable to his framing stats and his receiving stats. And that's why he's close to the top of the baseball prospectus leaderboard because warp is the only one of these win value stats that factors in the catcher's receiving skills. So he does well by baseball reference war, fan war, but they are not factoring in his framing. So that's what vaults him to the top because he has been the best framing catcher in baseball this year, according to the sets. So I talked to him. I have an article on TheRinger.com about him that goes into more detail than maybe we will talk about, but we're going to just hear from him now. I'm going to play an excerpt from our conversation, and this will take up about half of the episode most likely, and then you and I will reconvene to discuss the significance of Tyler Flowers' placement on this leaderboard and whether we think he deserves to be there and maybe more importantly, what we think of framing as a skill, what we think of the ability to manipulate the strike zone and umpires, whether we are in support of robot umps and computerized strike zones or not. This is always a popular debate, but we have not yet had it on this podcast. So this is the perfect time. So I will tee up Tyler right now, and we will be back after that to discuss. High fly ball, hammered deep right. Harper on the run, still going to the wall. It's gone! Tyler Flowers, head opposite field, three-run homer. It's not bad for a 33rd-round draft pick. You've always been a really good receiving catcher, at least by the the best public stats we have for that sort of thing. But this year, it it seems like you've taken it to a a new level and have really had a a lot of success expanding the zone or a little or however you want to say it. Some catchers I know say stealing strikes and others say, you know, presenting or or just uh, giving the umpire a good look or I don't know how you describe it, but it seems like you're having a a lot of success with that this year. And I'm wondering if you uh, have any explanation for that or if you're doing anything differently. Yeah. I mean, I guess first off, I don't call it stealing strikes or even presenting, uh, I mean, my, my goal with the whole thing, since I became somewhat enthralled with this aspect of it and, and that there is a actual stat number that goes along with guys who are better and guys who aren't as good. 
Mm-hmm. The whole goal from the onset was to find a way to have the ability to get every pitch that's in the strike zone called the strikes. Mm-hmm. You know, so that includes when I'm set up inside, getting that pitch that's on the outside corner, finding some way to still have a chance to get that pitch called a strike. So I think the more that I've been focused on that as like the overall thesis of what I'm trying to do, mm-hmm. inevitably you're going to get pitches that are one inch off or one inch below or, you know, above the zone. You know, I think it all kind of goes hand in hand. As of all, yeah, my, my goal is not to steal strikes, but that's a byproduct of you know the, the way I've tried to catch every pitch. Mm-hmm. It's been years in, in, in the works. I think it was 2014, the first time I saw, like, I still get this mixed up. I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014, where I was like the first time I actually saw a, a stat. So I went and looked where I, I stacked up against those guys. Some guys did a great job anticipating it. Other guys somewhat compensated with a low pitch in their setup. Mm-hmm. I kind of did both of those. I changed my setup to get my center of gravity and base a little bit lower to the ground. Uh-huh. just to create a stronger position for the lower pitches. And I also started to really anticipate low pitches in the zone and, and how I wanted to catch them. So it's just kind of been uh, studying myself and other catchers. I mean, basically every game, every game I catch, I go back and watch, typically that night or the next morning. Uh-huh. There's always a couple pitches in your head that you caught okay, you know, but not exactly how you wanted to. And you yeah. kind of want to see where you went that. So I really, I've just been enthralled in that aspect, and it's nice to see that it does get a little bit of appreciation. Mm-hmm. Such a, it's such a game changer in the moment. That's the fun part is you don't know, you don't know which pitch is going to change the game, but I know one of them is going to change the game. Right. Yeah. And just looking at some some heat maps of where the called strikes have been this year when you've been catching, it, it seems like you've had a, a ton of success low and outside to righties. That seems like it's the, the area where you've been able to maybe expand the zone a little more or at least not lose any calls in, in that area. Does that line up with what you feel your strength has been? Or even comparing it to, say, last year, it seems like there's a a sizable difference there. And I don't know whether you're calling for pitches more frequently in that area or whether you've just managed to tweak something a little bit so that you, you seem to be getting a little more space off the edge there. You know, I feel like I essentially am doing the same thing as far as how I'm catching those pitches as I did in years past. Mm -hmm. I think I might be a little bit cleaner at it. I might be a little more consistent with it. My timing and what I'm trying to do might be a little more accurate, which is helping me on those. But that said, a lot of this is also the variable of the pitcher and, and his ability to get pitches there, first right. off. Secondly, his ability to have consistent act, action on whatever pitch that is that's going to whatever area it's going to. The more consistent they are with the break of their slider or the action of their tough fastball or their sinker, the easier it is for me to know that action, anticipate that action, and kind of compensate for that action to, to receive it how I'd like to receive it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is some somewhat basic logic that I think a lot of catchers miss. The more you get away from either side of the plate, but staying with a way to a righty, and say we turn it into a right-handed slider going down the way to a righty, you know, the deeper you catch that ball, the more it, it appears to be away, off the plate away. Uh-huh. So the further out front you can catch that ball, the appearance of the pitch seems to be more towards the plate, and the break seems to 
be smaller mm-hmm. first you know, I'd let it travel you know where it almost is hitting me in the chest or in the arm you know that can appear as much as eight ten more inches of break going away from the plate so so you combine that with you know the lower the pitch is kind of the same theory the further out in front you want to try and catch the pitch because again if I let it get between my legs the appearance could be another six inches lower versus I catch it as I'm extending my arm out in front of me you know you could be making it look like it's a foot higher than it actually is mm-hmm. so is that just about reaching forward or do you actually set up closer to the plate well yeah that's another aspect of it too I mean the closer you can get the further you can reach the easier it is to present pitches that are lower in the zone especially when you start talking about what, like 12 six type breaking balls but also along with that if you just stick your arm straight out in front of you the force of that ball with your arm just locked out in front of you is going to take your glove towards the ground. Right. The timing along with the extension of your arm where you're trying to still be in a strong position to essentially catch that ball where it literally hits your glove. Mm-hmm. If you watch a lot of guys, they'll reach out for a curveball or, or even fastballs that aren't straight at their mitt and it'll hit their glove and it'll continue to push their glove further in whichever direction they had to move to get to that pitch. Yeah. So the biggest key is to find a way to make an emphasis against the direction of the ball. So if I'm reaching to my right to catch a fastball, I got to get my glove to the right Mm -hmm. before that fastball gets and make an effort to go back where the ball is coming from, which would be back to the left. So right before I catch that ball, I make an effort with my arm to create some sort of force to be able to stop baseball that's coming at me at 90 plus uh, mm-hmm. to essentially try and catch it right where it hits my glove. Because if you don't make any move a fair bit out of the zone, and uh, again, the, the, the look of it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. And your career has kind of overlapped or, or coincided with the whole pitch FX stat cast era. And so it does seem like even just over the last few years, the variation between teams and between catchers as far as their ability to frame or receive or whatever you want to call it seems to have compressed a little bit. Like even if you, you know, look back at 2009 or 2010, there was just a much wider range between the best and the worst teams or catchers. Whereas now, I guess either everyone is working on it more or guys who weren't as good at it maybe have been replaced by guys who are better at it, which makes what you're doing this year even more remarkable because if you look at guys who were good at this skill when you first came up, in many cases, they don't stand out from the pack as much today, and yet you seem to have distanced yourself further from the typical catcher in this respect. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I wonder about some of that, too. I mean, I see uh, Buster's not as successful mm-hmm. this season, specifically. Yeah, Jonathan Lucroy is another one. Yeah, you know, I, I, I know teams are definitely more aware of it, and I know teams are definitely putting much more of an emphasis on trying to teach their guys, and if they don't have any guys that are ready and guys that aren't grabbing onto it, I think you've seen in the free agent market, specifically this past offseason, teams targeting those kind of catchers, mm-hmm. which is a good thing, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're starting to see the value in it. But, you know, some of the other guys, I don't know if, you know, maybe they were just good at it and uh, it was just something a little more natural for them and they didn't really have to put time and effort into it. They just happened to be good at it and maybe 
maybe that's the case for some of those guys that have kind of tapered down in their success with it. And, you know, I, I've heard some catchers say they don't really believe in it, uh-huh. which is hard, hard for me to believe. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I think we still hear that a lot. We still hear that we believe the, the umpire is biased in a, in a specific game. I'd like to think we're all smart enough to realize that's not the case. (laughs) What do you think of the idea that some guys who got a reputation for doing this became known for doing it? Maybe the umpires read those articles and they know that this guy's really good at this. And so maybe you're on your guard a little bit more than you would be otherwise. Do you buy into that theory? I, I don't buy into it, no. I've had that question a few times myself. It's also part of the reason why I maintain my wording on, on uh-huh. what I'm trying to do back there as far as right. getting strikes called strikes. If anything, I feel like the majority of the time I get compliments in the positive direction where umpires have told me that they feel like I make it easier for them to be accurate and correct. Mm-hmm. They really enjoy it and, and find it to be an easier game to call because the presentation of every pitch is, is so good. Mm-hmm. It's a much more clear cut for them. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely somewhat a fear in a sense, but, uh, I don't believe it to possibly be a reality. I don't believe that the umpires can, you know, decipher between me and Salvador Perez and flip flop their zone from you yeah. know half inning to half inning. I yeah. guess they could, but I think I think it would be pretty obvious that there was something else going on out of the ordinary for that umpire. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there's any trade-off between receiving and throwing? Last year, you didn't have as much success throwing, for instance, and I know it's often very dependent on the pitching staff, but is there a trade-off where if you're wanting to be still and steady and provide the best look at the pitch, where you sometimes have to choose between that and, and say, getting a slightly quicker pop time if a guy's going to go? Is there any kind of trade-off there? I don't, I don't think there's much of a trade-off in, in those two specifically i think there is a trade-off between blocking pitches and the ability to get some lower pitches in the zone Uh or even further outside pitches first things first throwing wise when i first started catching and i first got in pro ball i thought i was a pretty good thrower i had a decent arm i had fresh legs (laughs) (laughs) i had two good knees you know two good ankles all those things no shoulder surgeries so, I mean, I, I think I was typically, when I first got in pro ball, upper 1.8s, mm-hmm. low 1.9s, you know, depending upon the pitch, location. As I've gotten older, it's definitely not one of my strengths. And then I, I had a number of opportunities to throw guys out and because of inside of me wanting to throw the guys out so bad because I know I was not doing a good job at it that I'd rush my throw and I'd make bad throws. And a lot of times those happened to be at the times where I would have definitely had the guy if I would have just made my normal throw. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it definitely definitely snowballed on me last season for sure. With that said, I've also been on teams where it's not a, a huge emphasis on being quick to the plate and, and that specific part of the game, throwing out runners, isn't a huge emphasis. It seems like, of course, we all want to throw out every runner and every team wants to give you as much time as possible to be able to throw out every guy. But the reality is, in my opinion, the much more important part of those situations is throwing strikes. The much more important part is to get the borderline pitch call to strike. Of course, I want to throw out as many guys as Salvador Perez, but with that said, 
said. I mean, God gave him a much better arm than he gave me. <laughs> and uh, but with that said, Salvador Perez can't receive pitches the way I do either. So mm-hmm. it's kind of pick your poison. Which which one does your team want? Which one does your team value? Mm-hmm. In my opinion, the receiving aspect is far more valuable than throwing out 50% of runners. But some teams don't believe in that. You know, some teams don't believe in those those numbers that we've been able to formulate for each of those things mm-hmm. and of course it's easy for me to say sitting here as a as a good pitch framer and not a good thrower <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but i think i think it's more valuable and so you've worked with some of the most experienced pitchers in baseball this year and some of the least experienced pitchers you know you're working with guys like cologne and dickey and then also guys like sean newcomb and it's really all across the spectrum so how does that change your preparation as far as game calling and handling your pitchers? Yeah, that is also, I'd say, one of the most fun parts for me. The preparation aspect, the study and opposition. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. You know, I, I go through every hitter that we're, every team we're playing against, every hitter, and I kind of write up a, a basic assessment of what I think their strengths and weaknesses are and locations and tendencies early late and counts what they have a tendency to chase with two strikes what they seem to be looking for early what they seem to be trying to do late in the bats so i take all that and kind of generalize it and i have a, a folder of basically every team i've played against written out just as i described and i'll then take that and apply it to that picture for us that night you know say it's a, a starting pitcher for us that doesn't have a good changeup say his changeup is number four but this hitter is really susceptible to changeups well i gotta kind of push that aside realizing that my pitcher that's not one of his strengths then of course it's communicating with them and also of course it's their ability that night and their feel on which pitches are working for them which pitches aren't and you know where they're having an easier time getting the pitches to inside or outside so i mean a lot of it is uh work beforehand and then a lot of it is recognizing what you're seeing in the bullpen and in the game and kind of adjusting your plan for that specific game. So, I mean, RA is somewhat out of that mix with the knuckleball. But with that said, there's a lot of history you guys have against RA as well. Some guys like to see one flutter in there first. Some guys like to just go get it, right? First knuckleball coming in there, they want to swing and get the bat over with. So, again, a lot of it is just kind of doing your homework and you can find areas where there are some free pitches I think he's enjoyed that aspect where he can throw some borderline fastballs and be able to get some some more calls on those pitches to get him back into at bats and you know help limit his walks and force some hitters to swing. You know, in my mind, as black and white as receiving numbers, you might as well take advantage of it because it's it's a big advantage when you dive into it and you do the work to find out where those opportunities are. Yeah. Well, we've talked all this time and I haven't even asked you about your offense, which is, you know, going well also. And that's kind of another way in which you're you're bucking the, the big league trend in that obviously we're seeing a less contact oriented game and you have improved your contact rate dramatically. Is that a, a conscious change? Is it something mechanical? What have you done differently there? You know, I mean, in one sense, it's a conscious change. In another sense, it's not. Since I came to the Braves, I've had a different hitting coach. He he has a different, I'm not going to say philosophy. He emphasizes a different aspect of hitting than I've ever emphasized or or had a coach emphasize with me. Uh It's actually very simple. He calls it approach. The approach is very simple. I'm looking for a pitch, middle part of the plate. 
which is not something new for me. Of course, I mean, that's where a lot of hitters want to pitch. What is new for me is the approach part where I'm looking for a pitch in the middle part of the plate and I'm trying to drive it up the middle. Just that thought alone, I think, has been tremendous for me. It's been tremendous for my timing, my pitch recognition, and my ability to actually do that, along with what it kind of naturally does to your swing path. The more you're looking to pull, the more you're looking to go opposite field, the more your, your swing subconsciously and literally starts going in that direction you know so mm-hmm. if i'm looking to pull my tendency is to get the barrel in the zone real quick get the barrel flying to left field real quick and getting the barrel snapping through the zone real quick therefore making a much smaller area that i can make square contact with the ball much less make square contact with the ball and backspin it and all those things how you want to do it mm-hmm. and the same thing for if you're just trying to go dead right field the tendency is to kind of lay off the barrel early drag it through the zone and, you know, essentially hit flares to right field. But all of a sudden, when I started trying to think up the middle, up the middle, uh, my bat path became, it gave me much more margin for error in terms of the depths and distance out in front. I could still get some barrel on on the pitches. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing for me. And that's the biggest challenge for me day in, day out, is to not try and do more, to not try and think mechanically, which I've done my whole life to just trust that this thought helps your mechanics and puts it all in place and helps your timing where my first instinct inside me is to look at video and see what I did wrong with my swing or my leg kick or my posture. So you don't chuck up that much of it to the leg kick? Because I know when there is a a very visible change that a player makes, it's easy to say, well, he's playing differently and he did this very visible thing differently. So it must be the very visible thing that is making him play differently. And I know that you did add a leg kick, right, or a bigger leg kick last year. Yeah, I never had a leg kick and, and I went for it last year at one point. You know, I was still within the process of trying to solidify an approach and understand my approach all the while at that time, you know, mm-hmm. AJ was splitting time with me. So my consistent at bats weren't there. So yeah. there was a game in New York. I was frustrated. I think I was over two at the time. The right-handed pitcher came out of the pen for the Mets. He threw hard. I was leading off the inning and I just kind of said, screw it. I'm going for it. You know, I just wanted to do something different. Uh-huh. And uh, I did a decent leg kick, first pitch heater. I mean, I was ready for it. You know, it was the ambush, classic ambush situation, and I went for it, and I hit a line shot, left center home run. So I thought to myself, man, that was easy power right there. Man, this electric thing's pretty cool. I think we've seen that with a lot of guys where it seems like, as you said, they had a left kick, and all of a sudden they're hitting the ball better, driving balls, hitting homers. So I was Mm -hmm. like, man, this is easy. You know, so then my next at bat, I faced another reliever. This was a guy with a tendency to quick pitch with nobody on base. And he quick pitched the first two strikes right by me, me on my foot. I was still like halfway in my leg kick and I wanted to start my swing, but I had to wait for my foot to get back down. And by the time I got down, the catcher had already caught it. So I realized I had some work to do if this leg kick thing was going to be part of my swing. So the the leg kick thing with that said has has definitely helped me from a a timing standpoint, Mm kind of like the pitch framing thing. It's something black and white I can define my timing with. There's a literal time where I want to be in certain spots within that leg kick that, again, through studying and watching other guys doing it, I kind of found to be the common denominator. We, we often refer to things within our swings by clicks, referring to a click of the mouse, a, a frame of video. Uh-huh. So I want to be at 
top of my leg kicks and one click going down before the pitcher releases the ball. With that said, if the guy, you know, if I'm facing Araldis Chapman, I probably want to be like three clicks. If I'm facing Bronson Arroyo, I really don't have to probably even be one click just because of the velocity difference. Because that's something for me, timing, I, I never really had that in, honestly, my entire life uh-huh. until I really dove into the leg kick aspect. I've had hitting coaches and people tell me, you know, start sooner. And it sounds like a very immature elementary response to that where I would always say, start what sooner, uh, which sounds kind of stupid. I feel like most people would be like, well, that's easy. Just start your swing sooner. Yeah, It's not that easy. There's so many other things that happen before you have the ability to start your swing. Sometimes, I mean, we're talking hundreds, thousands of a second where hitters can feel the difference in when they want to start their swing and when it actually starts. And then you got to figure out why it's not starting right when you want it to start. Yeah, it took me till the leg kick to actually have any sort of definition of my own personal timing. Whereas before, I guess it was just raw ability, you know, growing up as a kid, subconscious mm-hmm. ability, just seeing a guy throwing a ball at you, you know, dad's throwing me the pitch. Subconsciously, you did what you had to do to be able to get the barrel to the pitch. Mm-hmm. But apparently at a point when velocity gets to a certain new height, that didn't work for me, at least. And mm-hmm. I had to figure out something else. Yeah. I don't know how much you, you look up stats, but there's one version of the wins above replacement stat, the baseball prospectus version that takes framing into account. And right now they have you as the fourth most valuable player in baseball this year. I think you were third yesterday before Vado hit a couple home runs. And, and that's not just catchers, that's everyone. Yeah, um, I, I'm somewhat aware of it that number specifically not that i entirely comprehend it though you know it seems like <laughs> if there's that much of a value on the framing aspect maybe catchers or myself we have like an unfair advantage to move up that list mm-hmm. so yeah i guess i, I just i lack the, the comprehension and information on that to really have an opinion i mean i think that's pretty that's pretty cool yeah <laughs> um, i should ask for a raise then if that's true yeah, you got the team option, but uh, after that, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. You know, the other big thing, like, last season was the first time I played professional baseball at the major league level and had fun throughout the whole season, you know. And of course, it's easier to have fun when you're having success, but it's also easier to have fun when you got an idea of what you're doing, mm-hmm. both hitting and catching. Before that, it was it was a grind, man. When you hit 200, you know, I got to the point where I believed my ceiling was a 240 hitter in my good years you know mm-hmm. when you believe that man it's, it's hard to have fun every day and it's hard to it's hard to be optimistic about the future but coming to the Braves changed my life I'm not outcome oriented anymore the bigger picture is much more in play mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's I think that's helped me be a better baseball player in general just having a better picture of the big picture of life not just baseball the coaches I've been around here have definitely been huge being at home is also a great benefit. I have four kids now. You see a lot of value in that, them being able to be around their own friends and mm-hmm. not have to pack up their world and leave. You know, when I was young, it, it was, you know, an 0 for 4 killed me and it killed my life away from the field too. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't kill me because you could look at it both ways. It doesn't kill you because you're hitting well and, or it doesn't kill you because you're older and more mature and know it's going to change. I know just being older and I guess being on both ends of the spectrum, being called the worst player in the major leagues and, and to now be potentially fourth 
or whatever <laughs> at the moment. I guess maybe I have a better uh, outlook on that than, than most players that are in the same position I am right now. Because a lot of them haven't been at the bottom of the barrel like I was. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. Me too. I mean, receiving is my passion. I, I've considered at some point trying to like write a book or something. Not that I'm a good writer or even a reader, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I've put so much time and effort into it and, and I've had success with it. That, yeah. You know, it'd be kind of fun to share. With that said, I don't want to give it all away while I'm playing either. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, thanks so much. Great talking to you. You too, man. I appreciate the time. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back to discuss what we just heard. There's nothing like dining al fresco on a cool summer night with a great glass of wine, but finding new wines to try can be so overwhelming, especially when you're at the store and you're faced with aisles of choices. Thankfully, NakedWines.com offers exclusive wines that you can't find anywhere else, making it easy to discover something new and delicious all the time. Not to mention, their unique business model connects everyday wine drinkers and winemakers more closely than ever before, granting you access to more than 400 limited production wines, each one a discovery, the passion project of an experienced artisan who makes wines thanks to your support. Better yet, NakedWines.com removes a huge chunk of costs that in a traditional wine business would typically be passed on to you, so you save up to 60% on the wines you love. Plus, the winemaker gets to spend more time in the vineyard and less in the office, which means the wines taste better. And with over 2 million customer reviews, you can easily determine which wine is right for you. Here's the best news, you can get $100 off your first order. Try 12 of NakedWines.com's favorites for only $79. Just visit NakedWines.com MLB to claim this offer. Again, that's NakedWines.com MLB. MLB. And now back to baseball. So one caveat I should include here, and this actually has some bearing on the discussion that we're about to have, is that the switchover from PitchFX to StatCast this season as the primary method of pitch tracking by MLB has caused some problems and some pitches have been missed. Some locations have been mistracked. They've been off by inches or even feet in certain cases. And SunTrust Park, the home of the Braves, has been plagued by some of these problems, particularly early in the season. It's a new stadium. The system, it seems, wasn't properly calibrated before the season started. So that could be inflating Flowers' framing stats to a certain extent. That said... Probably only enough to ding him just slightly, like he's not going to go from great to average or bad. He might go to slightly less great. His backup, Kurt Suzuki, has continued to be below average working with the same system and the same staff. And as the StatCast system has improved, Flowers' stats have also improved. So it doesn't seem as if this is just an artifact of the early part of the season when some of those pitches were being mistracked. But that, as I indicated, there has some bearing on our discussion now, which is whether we are ready for robot umps and whether we want robot umps, even if we are ready. First, I'll just ask to what extent you buy the Tyler Flowers transformation and his placement close to the top of that leaderboard. Well, I mean, the if if you're a catcher with a 410 on base percentage, then you're really good, even if you're modern day Jonathan Lucroy as opposed to old school Jonathan Lucroy. Right. I think yeah. it was interesting the degree to which he had considered all of this stuff. Because, you know, yeah. I talked to, I had my first, I was going to say face to face with Aaron Judge over the weekend when the Yankees were in town, but it was really more like. <laughs> 
like face to sternum. Um, right. <laughs> so, you know, I asked him specifically something that you had brought up, which was, you know, I want to know how his plate discipline got so good over the over the yeah. offseason. Because he was, you know, he's not a guy who came out of nowhere. He was here and he was awful. And then he turned into God. And he didn't really have a very illuminating answer, which is why we listen to Tyler Flowers and not Aaron Judge for, for the past 20 minutes. Um, you know, he just said he had the same approach and he's sticking with it more this year, which, you know, I guess is fair enough. But Flowers has made all sorts of mechanical, t- you know, he sat at the leg kick. He, mm-hmm. you know, he went into all that detail about how he's gone out of his way to learn about framing. And, I, you know, I think it's it's cool when guys do that mid-career and I like to see them rewarded. And I think, you know, I don't know, he was he was a better hitter last year than than at any point in his career before and this you know he actually added the he added the leg kick last june and he was significantly better after that but uh the hitting coach he was crediting in that interview is kevin seitzer who has gotten some rave reviews from stat head types before and that seems to have made a, a big difference or at least flowers is convinced that working with seitzer has made a big difference which is maybe half the battle on its own yeah, I don't know. So, like, I more or less trust baseball prospectuses framing numbers. You know, mm-hmm. as annoying as it is that framing is a thing, like, it's a thing and we can quantify it. And I feel like we can quantify it, not like to within a tenth of a run of accuracy, but broadly quantify it accurately. So, you know, certainly, you know, I, I think the bat's going to cool off. And I wonder how long the, you mm-hmm. know, because if, if Lucroy's framing can go in the tank, then anybody's framing can go in the tank. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, but, right. you know, if, if he ends up with as, uh, you know, a five or six warp player, I guess, you know, that's what BP's been higher than anybody else on Yasmani Grandal for for the mm-hmm. same reason for years and years. so Right, yeah. And Flowers has always been a, a good framer, so this isn't completely out of character for him. It's just his, his best season so far. And yeah, you know, he's going to turn 32 before next spring training, so it's not like he's some young up-and-comer who is now going to be a superstar for the next decade, but he's having a really good year, and maybe it will just turn out to be one of those kind of fluky mid-career years and it won't look anything like the season surrounding it but he seems to have made some real changes and he's fun to talk to about it because he's given it so much thought and kind of has that analytical approach that that we value in players Mm -hmm. yeah i i don't buy the bat this much you know Mm -hmm. i think if he settles down as a league average hitter then he'll you know a league average hitter who frames well as a catcher is a really valuable player, but you yep. know, I got if you know if he posts a, a four ten OBP through the rest of the season, then <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a high BABIP guy, so yeah. I don't think that will continue to be the case. But when you look at reasons for the Braves being in second place at this point in the season, partially it's just that the Mets and the Phillies for, have been terrible. Yeah, the Mets, the Phillies, and the Marlins are the three <laughs> but, reasons that the Braves are in second. Yes, place. that has a lot to do with it. But if you're just looking at Braves, I think it has maybe less to do with the guys that they brought on to make this run at respectability in the first season at SunTrust, guys like Dickey and Cologne, who's gone now, and Matt Kemp, who's hit well but is terrible defensively, and Brandon Phillips and Kurt Suzuki, guys like that. I think, if anything, one of the biggest reasons for their success looking at at their roster alone is Flowers and the way that he has seemingly improved himself. So, it's interesting that you say that you're sad that framing has to be a thing I'm and that you're sad. you're resigned it's to it. But irrita- it's irritating that it matters so much, I think. Because I think uh-huh. at John Bernhardt, who who writes for FanRag now, I remember him saying when framing first became a thing that like somebody it was like 
I think it was Jose Molina. Like, so like you mean to tell me that Jose Molina's ability to receiving ability is as much as like an entire Manny Machado Uh because it was, you know, because that year he had like 30 framing runs above average or something like that. And that just never really passed the smell test. But, you know, here we are. And it seems, you know, the the Astros hired Mike Fast who pioneered Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So, you know, he must have been on to something. Yeah. And I think once you know the numbers and you watch these guys, I think you can see the difference. And certainly you could with Molina, who was just incredibly quiet and still behind home plate. But we don't have to go into whether framing is real. I think it's well established that it is at this point. But every time I write about framing, talk about framing, I inevitably get comments like this is umpire exploitation. This is exploiting the fact that human eyes are fallible and the senses desert us at and times. F- and, and Flowers was really careful to like yes, yes to he was. the way he chose his, his words. And you see a lot of catchers do that. Like they're yes. very normative about what about how they discuss framing, which is interesting. Right. Yeah. And he also said he doesn't believe in the backlash, the idea that an umpire would penalize a catcher because he knows that the catcher has good framing stats or something. But it sounds like he's saying better safe than sorry. But I love that this is a thing. And I've certainly gotten a lot of articles and podcasts out of it. So maybe that's biased me. But when I first found out that, hey, Jose Molina is a great player, and I thought he was a terrible player, that was probably the most exciting sabermetric discovery of my writing career, that that period during which I've been covering baseball. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an added level of nuance and and a layer of analysis that I'm glad is there. And obviously, it's always been part of baseball. And now we've just developed the means to quantify it. So that is part of the reason why... I am anti-robo-ump, and it sounds from our previous conversation that you are also anti-robo-ump, but I gather for different reasons, because I would really miss framing, and to me, the ability to expand the strike zone, whether it's a pitcher who does it or a hitter who does it, is a skill. We know that it's a repeatable thing that players can do from year to year, and while it's certainly unfair for a hitter that you know something that's happening behind him essentially is contributing to the call that's being made and and the zone is fluctuating from 02 to 30 or based on who's behind him whether it's the umpire or a catcher but that's always the way it's been which is not in itself a good argument but i think there's value to the way it's been and i think that that skill is something that differentiates players that gives us a greater appreciation for the skill that goes into catching I would miss it if there were no difference between Jose Molina and Ryan Domit, who is the poster boy for terrible receiving We got to get a new poster boy. Ryan <laughs> Domit hasn't he caught the majors so in forever. <laughs> I know, but we'll never see another one like him, I don't think. But it would sadden me, I think, if it just didn't matter how you caught a pitch as long as you did catch it. You'd, you'd still have to block the ball. Obviously, you'd still have to get in a good throwing position, but it wouldn't really matter the technique that you use to catch it. And while it might be more fair in certain ways... I think everyone knows that this is the case. They know that the zone shifts and expands and contracts based on the count. They know that the catcher has an impact. They know that the umpire has an impact. If you're a conscientious batter, you can study these things and and know the umpire's and the catcher's tendencies so you can take advantage of it or 
or save yourself from being taken advantage of. So to me, it's a, a level of strategy that I would miss if we went to a computerized strike zone. And that's to say nothing of all of the unintended consequences that would be hard to anticipate. Yeah, I think so. My objection of robot umps is twofold. One of them is I don't expect this to be persuasive, but it would look really weird if there was no home plate umpire. If you had a home, like, it but feels like need one yeah, you'd still need one for plays of the plate. But like, if he's yeah. just standing there not doing anything, then, you know, that's just... What do you even do? It's just going to be so weird. And particularly, (laughs) even if he's still calling, you know, communicating the, you know, from the headset from, Mm -hmm. I actually looked up the roster of of MLB umpires and came up with this one. If he's getting the calls from Roboto Ortiz, um, (laughs) it's still going to feel weird. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's not a good argument. I don't expect that to be persuasive, but we get used to it. The other thing is the technology isn't there yet. Right. And if you want to know how not there the technology is then i would suggest you tweet robot umps at harry pavlidis uh <laughs> yes <laughs> uh who is an expert in this sort of thing and he will explain you in great detail but what it comes down to for me is like we talked about this that you know you brought this up just now that Statcast is missing pitches occasionally mm-hmm. it's misspotting pitches by a matter of several inches and yeah. that can't happen ever ever right. if you if you're relying on a robot, I mean, you see those strike zone bot Twitter accounts where, you know, it says, oh, this was called the ball. and It was right down the middle of the plate. And you go back mm-hmm. and look at the video and actually it's off the plate like that can't happen. You have to mm-hmm. recalibrate the top and bottom of the strike zone every time, which they still have right. trouble doing. And I come back to a thought I had when I was listening to your podcast on driverless cars mm-hmm. and people trust computers like they trust it if there's not a human at the controls. And there's always a human at the controls of everything because someone's got to actually program this thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I trust your average driver who's in the car more than like I think, you know, like Uber's doing this. And somebody, you know, there's a running joke about if somebody at Uber every three weeks comes up and, you know, goes out in public and says – Something like, wow, you know, it would be great if we had a big Uber that ran a, you know, a schedule and stopped at certain points and multiple people (laughs) could get on. And these Nimrods have invented the city bus once every two weeks. And these (laughs) are the people who are going to be programming, in essence, teaching our driverless cars how to think and teaching our robot umps how to how to call a strike zone. And I don't think they're going to be very good at it. I don't think they're (laughs) going to be very good at it for a while. So, well, I mean, it should be a considerably simpler task to call pitches. These pitches are already being tracked. So it should be simpler to do that than to drive in traffic. But Yes, there are significant hurdles that still have to be cleared. And I wrote about this for Grantland almost four years ago. And I did check in with Harry Pavlidis earlier today. He is the director of technology at Baseball Prospectus. He manually classifies every pitch type at Brooks Baseball. He's the guy who does that. So he knows of what he speaks. And from what I have gleaned, not only are we no closer to a feasible automated system than we were when I wrote that article in 2013, but we have probably taken some steps back, at least temporarily. And this switchover from PitchFX to StatCast, as we've mentioned, it has screwed up the readings for locations in certain cases. And I think maybe the the greater hurdle is that the real-time processing takes longer than That's it used to thing. because right. right now now it's radar instead of the optical system that it used to be and so 
the speed and the accuracy when you're talking about a real-time feed for broadcasts and for players to know what the call is in games is just not quite there yet. And it does seem to be getting better as the season progresses and they're making hardware and software upgrades. But for now, I don't think you can count on those calls being made quickly enough that it wouldn't delay the game, even in addition to the accuracy issues. Even if it takes like five seconds a pitch, that's can you right. imagine waiting for the you know for the ball or strike call for five seconds? It's and it's got to be instantaneous and it's got to be right all the time. And mm-hmm. I mean, even if we did have tracking technology that was reliable enough and accurate enough to do that, I mean, there's, we've just still got so far to go. Like, there's a reason we don't have flying cars, um, <laughs> right? And yeah, and I mean, I think that the vertical boundaries of the strike zone will still be a problem right now if you look at pitch fx or, or now Statcast information but if you look at the broadcast box or whatever that's set manually by someone who is just looking at the screen and saying well his knees are about here and his shoulders are about there and that's what you'd have to do because there's and people no... gripe about that all the time like they hold that up right. as an example of you know What's the the ES the K zone on ESPN? That, yes, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, it's kind of unsettling the the way they render it. But like, you know, they say, "Oh, we can do K zone. Why can't we do automatic ball strike calls?" Well, people complain about K zone misrepresenting <laughs> right. the strike zone all the time. So imagine yes. if that was actually the umpire. I'm like, I'm okay working in more human element. I think that umpires. They blow the occasional call, but those stand out because they get the overwhelming majority of calls either either right or close enough that nobody questions the legitimacy. So Yeah, and when you say human element, I think there's a tendency to think that that sounds like a regressive or, or Luddite kind of stance or that it, it means that you're suspicious of technology, and, and that's not the case for us. But yeah. I think there are advantages to having a human right. there, not because it's a human, but because it adds these additional wrinkles that right. a computer wouldn't. And and maybe there are ways around these hurdles that we've brought up. I don't know. Maybe you could embed some sort of sensor in the player's uniform, although then what if the player moves the sensor or something? Who knows what kind of of gamesmanship there would be in everybody those wearing really tight you know no really tight jerseys and really baggy pants <laughs> right so i asked harry and he said that he does think that we will get to a point where these automated systems will be capable of rivaling or surpassing human umpire accuracy all of these bugs will be worked out he says he would suggest redundant systems where you'd have almost two identical trackers so that if one missed a pitch then you'd still have the other one maybe you could have some sort of umpire assistance system where the umpire gets to see what the reading is but still makes the call and could intervene if there's some clear mistake although i think it would be tough for the umpire to go from a mindset where he is just trusting the system to then having to to make a ruling i'm imagining jerry meals troubleshooting ms dos like (laughs) (laughs) right i think we will get to a point this is not an insuperable technological obstacle we'll get there 
And then we'll have a different discussion, which is whether we're better off with the current system or not. And I would assume that just the way that society and civilization have progressed, we will have robot umpires at some point or, or some kind of computer assistance here. Oh, yeah, it will be, it'll be robot umpires assisted by non-union minimum wage interns <laughs> who, who call out the... <laughs> the balls and strikes. <laughs> right. But I think that even when we reach that point, we'll have to think about this carefully because it's hard to say exactly what impact this would have on the better pitcher balance aside from just wiping out framing, which I would be sad about. Maybe most people wouldn't. But I think it's hard to say whether this would benefit one side or another. Obviously, you'd have different zone dimensions, but also, the predictability of knowing that a pitch will be called a strike seems like something that might benefit one side or the other more than the opponent. And whenever you tinker with the strike zone, I think you have to be careful because there's that old Bill James line about how something like a, an inch in the strike zone is equivalent to, I don't know, 25 feet in the outfield or something in, in terms of the influence it can have on the game just because the strike zone is so central to the sport. So I think you would have to weigh all of those factors very carefully. There would definitely be some pitches called strikes that right now are almost never called strikes, like a, I don't know, a low 12 to 6 curve or something like that that just falls off the table. I think hitters are used to that maybe not being called a strike, whereas under this system, it probably would be because technically it does pass through the strike zone at some point. So there would be a lot of adjustments. The league average OPS for left-handed batters goes up 50 points, you think, if, <laughs> if we get robot umps? Yeah, maybe just because there are fewer outside strikes called on them, although that's something that I think even human umpires have improved upon in recent years. So the strike zone is always shifting from pitch to pitch, from year to year. That wouldn't be the case anymore if you had a computerized system. So maybe baseball would be more static unless you decided to change the, the rulebook boundaries. So there are a lot of considerations here. And personally, the human called strike zone is not something that dissuades me from watching baseball. It does, I suppose, seem kind of quaint and archaic, although every sport has some human element when it comes to umpiring yeah. or refereeing. But I'll tell you what, have just watched the NHL playoffs and what they think is a goal and what isn't, and, you know, <laughs> and offsides. Like this is MLB umpires are near perfect compared to what's going on in other sports. So they are know. good and they've gotten better with feedback from mm -hmm. Quest Tech and from PitchFX and StatCast. So I think the problem is not nearly as acute as it once was, which would maybe not be much consolation for someone whose team loses in the playoffs on a terrible ball strike call. The 1997 Atlanta Braves. <laughs> do happen from time to time though not nearly to that degree. So I can totally understand anyone who is on the other side of this debate, but personally, I am pleased with the way things work now. I think there's some level of strike zone inconsistency where even I would say this is too much, but I think the zone has become much more standardized because of the technology that we've had to this point. And personally, I'm pretty pleased with the way things work. Yep. And you got in Super Bowl into this conversation and I said <laughs> Nimrod. So we both win our word of the day bet. And I think that's that. All right. Well, we will be back with another episode on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. Pleasure talking to you, Michael. Bye. Bye.